Oh, let's see. Okay, uh, one announcement for you is Reason for God booklets. If your family, one per family, didn't get one last week, go to the Welcome Center. We have more at the Welcome Center. This week we ran out in third service last week. Um, now, this is a series that's going to start next week. And all we need you to do is, is read the introduction over the next two weeks. That's all you got to do. It's, it's really simple. Now, uh, some people, my mother included, so I'm going to throw her under the bus, uh, has, has said that she thinks it might be over some of your heads. That does not mean that she thinks you're dumb. Okay? What it means is there's sometimes there's concepts that some people uh, naturally latch on to and other people don't. And that's one of the reasons why we want you to do this in communities with one another. So if you're not in a gospel community, we encourage you to get in one. If you, if you don't have the time or something like that, we, I encourage you to get together with some friends who are here that you can maybe discuss and talk through this. I think when you invest the time in this to understand it, it will help you better to understand how to speak of the gospel in the way in the world that kind of makes sense in the midst of a skeptical culture in which we live. So uh, I'd also, again, if you do not like reading, you have a hard time looking at words on a page, uh, go and get the Audible. Uh, Audible has a free 30-day trial. I sound like I'm, like I'm hawking Audible. Like, so, put in our element in the promotion tab. No, don't, because it wouldn't do anything for you. Uh, but you can, you can go get Audible. You can get a free book, 30-day trial. If you don't want to keep it after 30 days, you can cancel Audible and still keep the book. So I'd encourage you to go grab that if you want to listen uh, to the book. And again, just listen to the introduction over the next two weeks. It's all you, all you got to do. And we'll tell you each week which chapter to read uh, to be up for what we're going to be talking about the next time and stuff like that. So I encourage you to get the Audible version if you want a, a hard copy. Uh, see the Welcome Center today, and we have some more copies back there. We're giving it to you because we all want to go through that. So uh, welcome to Element. If you are new, there are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. Look like this. Uh, someone goes, there's a lot of verses today. Yeah, we'll, we'll go through them. You'll see how this is going to work. So uh, on the inside, you'll get some notes to go deeper into what we're talking about, some questions to also go deeper into what we're talking about that you can ask one another. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. Click on More and then Events, and Uversion will come up by GPS in your smartphone. You'll get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, everything that goes with today's message. <sighs> it's a mouthful, right? My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? This is Psalm chapter 68, verse 3, and it says, But the righteous shall be glad, they shall exult before God, they shall be jubilant with joy. Let's pray. Thought of this morning, I ask that you would teach us as a people to understand what it means to live in the joy that you provide, uh, to trust you and the things that you have shown us throughout all these weeks in the book of Proverbs, and that we would live out that wisdom in this world in a way that brings you great glory as we live in the joy that you do provide. Amen. Have a seat. So this is our last week in our counterculture series to the book of Proverbs. If you missed any of them, they're all online. Most of the messages are individual week by week by week, so you don't have to actually have all of them in a row to understand what we're talking about, although we do think it is helpful. As I said, next week we're going to start a series through Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God, an effort to help us to understand how reasonable to believe who God said he is. But this week I want to end the entire book of Proverbs and this whole counterculture idea 
deal on spending time talking about the countercultural idea of joy and what that means. Because joy is found, I think, in the wisdom that God provides and the person of who he is. Uh, a joyful life is what is supposed to mark God's people. Now, our culture today, everybody wants to be happy. We're all, everybody's trying to find happiness, happiness, happiness. But happiness is fleeting. I like to say happiness is like a family dog that doesn't stink. Either it doesn't exist or it doesn't last very long because it's just, it's just how it is. This is why the Bible calls us to joy because joy is a state of being of contented trusting in who God is. You can be sad and still have joy. You can be going through the worst trial of your life and you can still find joy in the midst of it. In Hebrews 12, 2, we read that Jesus even endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. Joy is so pervasive in the Bible that God himself is said to reside in joy, and God made us to live in that joy as well, but we'll never do it without understanding the great wisdom he has provided to us. So joy becomes very countercultural because it's not fleeting like happiness. It's not about us. It is found in the person of who God is. So we're going to take all we've learned at Proverbs and end with a joyful look at joy, God, and us. And I want to start by looking at a guy named St. Patrick. You may have heard of him. Uh, you got to wear green so you don't get pinched or green beer. It's one of those things, so there you go. Uh, Patrick, one of the ways that he reached Ireland was the understanding of the gospel and this focus and the joy of God and not upon the rituals that the church wanted to foist upon people. And I think it's, it does well for us to hear about that lesson and then begin to learn that. Again, not just the lesson of green beer. So let me give you a little bit of history of this, okay? Uh, Patrick lives in the 4th century. Growing up, he's 16 years old. He lives in the north uh, northeast of England. This is known as a Britain, which considered him Celtic, but he's really more a Roman by, by culture. His dad is a civil magistrate and a tax collector. His grandfather was a priest. Patrick so acquires some of this Christian knowledge and teaching because of his family, but he, in his own writings, called himself at that time a nominal Christian. He's a 16-year-old boy, so he makes fun of the clergy. He just kind of lives how a lot of 16-year-old boys live like in America today. Now, at that time, you had barbarians who were invading Rome from the south, so Rome was taking all of their soldiers and all of their men and send him to that border to guard that. So what happens where Patrick lives is there's no one really to guard his land from any invaders that wanted to come from the sea. You ever see Vikings? Okay, so four of you, great, all right. Uh, it's kind of like that, uh, but these people come from Ireland. And so they, these Irish people come over from Ireland and they go into Patrick's village at the time, they burn it to the ground and they haul him off to slavery at 16 years of age. They take him and they sell him to a tribal chief and druid and Patrick then goes out and he has to watch this guy's cattle for, the, for a period of about six years. So as a slave for six years, in his enslavement, Patrick says he learns three things. The first one is when he is isolated in the wilderness, when he's herding all of these cattle, it connected him with God's natural revelation. He senses the winds and the seasons and the creatures and the nights under the stars, and he identifies this with the presence of the triune God. It didn't make him worship creation. It made him worship the creator of the creation that he was experiencing. This is what Patrick writes. He says, After I had arrived in Ireland, I found myself pasturing flocks daily, and I prayed a number of times each day. More and more, the love and fear of God came to me, and faith grew, and my spirit was exercised until 
Eli was praying up to a hundred times every day. That's a lot. And in the night nearly as often. This trial of slavery actually turns Patrick into a devout follower of Jesus. This change becomes obvious to his captors. Second thing is he comes to understand these Irish Celtic people. Their language and the culture really only as someone who on the underside of society can come to experience and understand a culture. And thirdly, Patrick comes to love his captors. He wants to see their reconciliation with God. So he has this hope because he now identifies with them. After six years of captivity, he has a dream one night and an angel appears to him and says, you are going home. Look, your ship is ready. So he wakes up the next day. The angel directed him down to the seacoast. He gets there and there's a ship there. He negotiates his way on board and eventually he gets back to England where then he starts to train for the priesthood. Training for the priesthood, it immerses his mind in the scriptures. It grounds him in basic orthodox theology that prevailed in the church at the time. And then what does Patrick do? No. He spends decades as a priest in England. He does. And then one night at the useful age of 48 years old, I say that because I'm now 48, so I think it's funny. This is past a man's life expectancy in the 5th century. Patrick had another dream, and this changes his life. An angel approaches him again with letters from his former captors, and they say this, We appeal to you, holy servant boy, again funny because he's 48, (laughs) to come and walk among us. So Patrick wakes next morning. He goes to the church authorities, says, I need to go to Ireland. God is calling me to do this. And it's really impossible to understate the magnitude and significance of what Patrick set out to do because missionary leaders at the time, they widely assumed that these Irish people were just unsavable. There is no way they'd ever come to believe in Jesus because they thought at the time that the Christian mission had two things. Number one, obviously, is to evangelize and talk about the gospel, but the second thing was to civilize people. And usually the civilizing, they thought, had to actually come first. The problem with civilizing people is it's always based on the culture of that sending nation. Uh, Many times throughout history, a lot of uh, different cultures in the world, when American missionaries went in there, we tried to turn them into American churches. In the 17th century, Puritan missionaries to Native Americans organized them into uh, churches and Christian towns. But the reason they did that was to enculturate the Indians into a more decent and English way of living. And what they did is they got rid of this whole cultural heritage these people knew, when sometimes those cultural heritage can actually strengthen who we are as the people who love and worship God. Roman Christian leaders assumed the population had to be civilized enough to be Christianized and that to some degree civilization then for them was always a prerequisite to Christianity. And second, once a society was civilized enough, they were expected to read and write Latin, to speak Latin, to adopt Roman customs, to do church the Roman way. But that's not how Patrick saw it because Patrick lived in that society on the underside of it. The church assumed at the time reaching the Irish was impossible because for them, a population by definition had to be literate and rational enough. And if you've met any Irish people, you know, (laughs) I got some Irish in me. I can say that, okay? Uh, They thought you got to be cultured and civil enough to become real Christians. And if, and if they did, and, and they didn't really understand this because they thought the Irish were just a, a whole group of rowdy dropkick Murphy fans. First service didn't get that at all. They're like, what? I'm like, whatever. Okay. Patrick found value in these Celtic people. He understood their zeal for life and their laughter, their pursuit of this enjoyment of life. And so Patrick comes in, and what he sees his job to do is to show them how that connects to the gospel. 
how to help them to understand this enjoyment of life is really God calling us to enjoyment of who he is. He starts to think of all these creative ways about how to reach them, how they thought to enjoy life, but Patrick wants to show them a redeemed way to do that. Now, Patrick's mission to Ireland, it was unprecedented and widely assumed impossible because no one understood those people. It's kind of like a lot of times Christianity today. When we look around at people in the world and we say things like, well, why did they get a tattoo? Or how can they listen to that kind of music? Or why do they dress that way? It makes people think God's out of touch when really it's just God's people who are out of touch. So much of who the Irish people were, it actually prepared them to understand these central truth claims of Christianity in a way the Roman church never could. Like, think about this. The Irish had a fascination with rhetorical triads in the number three. It enabled them to embrace Christianity's triune God in a way that almost no other culture ever did. Christianity has these contrasting features of idealism and practicality. This engages identical traits in Irish character. No other religion could have engaged the Irish people's love for heroism and stories like Christianity because it is full of heroism and stories and the ultimate story of God coming to rescue us in the person of Jesus. A lot of Christianity's values and virtues essentially matched and fulfilled all these ideas in Irish folklore. Irish Christianity was actually able to deeply affirm and fulfill the Irish love for nature and the closeness of God. That nature wasn't to be worshipped, but God was, but he gave his nature as a way to experience who he is. Christianity comes and it fuels and it amplifies the Irish love for learning. It adapts to the Irish preference for oral tradition, for oral sharing of stories and memorizations rather than reading and writing. And this is why we're telling you, if you have a hard time reading, listen to the reason for God. It's okay. You're more Irish than you know, okay? This is the funny thing. There's a great book. It's called How the Irish Saved Civilization. And there was a time when hordes kind of swept through and took out libraries and books. And what actually brought culture back, it was the Irish because of their oral culture. And it couldn't be destroyed. It's really kind of interesting. Christianity contrasted with the Irish observed in their primary religion, all the things that, that, that they hated. And so Patrick was able to speak of the truth of the gospel and how gods weren't angry, but God was seeking to love and redeem and restore. The Celts, you got to understand, they were crazy people. If you know some Irish people, you, you know this. Some of them are just, you know, kind of crazy. At, in battle, what they would do is they would strip naked and grab a sword and come running at you. Ah! If there is a dude buck naked with a sword, that's confidence, okay? And I'd be like, I got to go, all right? I'm just running away from this battle. I, I, don't know, I don't know what to do with this. So Patrick can't show up and say, hey, you bunch of great moral guys. You know, here's the gospel. He's got to connect it in a way where they understood the world and understood what God was trying to do. And that's what he does. So he centers what he teaches them around community, life, and joy, and obviously the person of Jesus Christ. There was no indigenous Irish Christian movement before Patrick. There's an ancient document called The Annals of the Four Masters, and it reports that Patrick's mission planted 700 churches and Patrick ordained over 1,000 priests. Within his lifetime, 40 or more of Ireland's 150 tribes became substantially Christ-following. One historian says it like this, Most certainly he did not succeed in converting all the heathens of the island, but he won so many of them for Christ, he founded so many churches, ordained so many clerics, kindled such a zeal in men's hearts, that it seems right to believe that to him was directly due the wonderful outblossoming of Christianity which distinguished Ireland in the following ages. You know, Christianity, or uh, uh, Patrick was the first man, public man, to speak in crusade against slavery, and within his lifetime, the Irish slave trade came to an end. 
It's kind of interesting. Now, you would assume that the, the British church would love this, right? They ordained Patrick to go. They would affirm his mission, celebrate all of his achievements, but that's far from the case. The British leaders were actually offended at Patrick because he spent so much of his time with these uncivilized barbarians peoples. And they said, you spend all your time literally with pagan sinners and barbarians. How can you eat and drink with them? What does that sound like? Sounds like Jesus. Mark 2.16, And the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating and drinking with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why? Because they need Jesus. That's why. That's why. We are called to be a people who display the joy and the hope and the love of Jesus so everyone would know the joy that God brings. This is what Patrick did. And that doesn't mean when you experience joy with people that you're the drunk guy in the corner with a lampshade on your head from green beer going, woo! That's not what that means. It means you live a life full of joy because Jesus has redeemed us. And we get to live in new and full life. I think people will be reached, especially in our culture, just like that one, with joy and love for Jesus. It's Jesus who brings this to us. So what I want to do is have you keep that in mind what Patrick did. And I want to give you 11 reasons out of the scriptures that we're supposed to have joy today. And now why it's supposed to be pervasive in all that we do. Psalm 68 verse 3 says, But may the righteous be glad and rejoice before God. May they be happy and joyful. So I'm going to give you 11 reasons to be joyful. I stole some of these from John Piper. I don't remember which ones at this point, so whatever. I'm just telling you where I got some of them. Okay, uh, these are 11 things. I'm going to blaze through these fast, all right? Uh, number one, we have a reason to be joyful and happy because, number one, God is joyous and happy. It starts with God himself. That's joy. Say joy. joy. Oh, man, you guys are good. You guys are good. Nehemiah 8.10, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Joy comes from God. It's supposed to make his people strong. We exist to glorify God. We do that partly by enjoying who he is. Number two, God made his people to enjoy him and the life he gives them. That is joy. Say it with me. There you go. You can sing it too, apparently. Psalm 16, verse 11 of the NIV. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with your joy and your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Pleasures come from the right hand of God. Where are we told Jesus is seated right now? The right hand of God. Exactly. God makes good things. We have to understand this. And yet we are the ones who mess all these good things up. God makes food. Who likes food? Yeah. We all like food. What do we do with food, though? We turn it into gluttony. Who likes sex? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> Last service, I was going to be like, you can raise your hand, just not my mom. Okay. Uh, <laughs> what, do, what do we do with this good thing that God makes called sex? We make pornography, and we make and, and one-night stands, and hooking up, and internet websites, and grinders. God makes humor. Who likes to laugh? Yeah, we, we, we like to laugh. What do we do with it? We make jokes at other people's expense. We tear one another down so we can laugh. We so often are robbing the truth from a good thing and separate it from life, love, and God. And then we start to despise that good thing. But pleasure is a good thing. Psalm 37, verse 4, Take delight in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. I think as we learn to enjoy God and what he brings, our palates and our tastes begin to change. Righteousness starts to taste good. Sin tastes bad. We don't like it anymore. And we keep trying to eat it. We're like, why doesn't this taste the way it used to? Because our palate is changing. I I think we enjoy God when our will and his begin to come together. Jesus says, if you love me and you enjoy God, you will love the things that he does. The church father Augustine says, love God and do whatever you please. And that scares the snot out of us because we're like, people are going to be evil if you say that. Well, some may, but that's not always true because when we love Jesus first, 
our entire palates begin to change. Takes me to my number three, and this is going to sound like not a joy, but I think it is when you look at it the right way. Our sin has caused us to trade enjoyment of God for sinful idolatry and foolish lesser pleasures. I think when we look at it correctly, we can understand that that may be where we are, but God calls us to still live in joy. Romans one twenty five. they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve created things rather than the creator who is ever praised. Because of our condition, we have a tendency to exchange God for anything else. The opposite of Christianity is not atheism. I think it's idolatry. We keep trying to put things into the place of God in our life. Paul is saying that we as a people will worship something, nature, pets, people, sex, food, bands, sports, video games, your look, your comfort, your home, your car. If it is less than other than Jesus, it will never satisfy, ever. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Guys, if we love God, we get pleasure. It's like C.S. Lewis once said that we are a people, though, who are far too easily pleased. We are far too easily pleased. So we settle for less than who God is. But there is joy in this because God has purposed to save us anyway. It pleases God to save us. Number four, God the Father which pleases us and God the Son to save his people. What is that? What happened? What is that? Joy. There you go. There you go. Uh, Titus 3, 3 through 7 of the NIV. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of our God and Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He died. He rose. He gave us the gift of life. Our righteousness comes from God alone. And that means we don't get to people who, be a people who say, well, I don't chew or smoke or drink or vote for Trump or Hillary. Therefore, I'm a, a righteous person. And Christians miss, the, miss this all the time. We think if we avoid pleasure, then we're somehow holy. It's like, oh, what's a sin? Well, what do you like? I like this. Well, then that must be a sin because you like it. It's so weird the things that people do. Do you know a pure motive is to enjoy God in what you do? That's a pure motive. When I was growing up, people would say, you need Jesus to forgive you of your sins for smoking and sleeping around and drugs. Well, what if somebody didn't do those things? Are they, are they holy and righteous, don't have any sins? No, we need Jesus because we're wicked and our hearts are prideful and we're self-centered. We make our lives all about us. We claim to be healthy, but we are sick. And this is why the son comes and dies in our place. It was for his pleasure. He was happy to rescue and to save us. And this totally blows my mind, which goes to number five. Jesus was pleased to die and raise for his people. Is this because we're so good? No, it's because he is so good. In the book of Genesis, God promises you sin, you die. We have all sinned. We have all died. We have broken relationship with God. We had no hope of restoration. We were living in death. And what does Jesus do? Comes and dies our death for us comes and restores us to life again. And you know what that brings? Joy! Yeah, you're getting it. You're getting it. Hebrews 12, 2, out of the NIV. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you understand the people that God created, he allowed to kill him. How could God do that? For the joy set before him. That's why he does it. In Philippians, it tells us that Jesus sees through the trial to the outcome, which shows us that joy in God is enough for us in our lives to go through any trial and hardship that comes towards us. 
Because there is no perfect life apart from Jesus. You may look at your past and think, oh, this was the best time of my life. No, your best time is what the gospel speaks into it now. You may look back at high school and think, high school were my best days. I will tell you something for free. Those pants will never fit again. You're welcome. Okay? Not going to apologize for it because it's just true. Jesus says we find joy in our struggles when we find ourselves in who he is. Jesus comes, sets us free from sin. The day doesn't come when all the planets align and then we're free from temptation. It comes by understanding his redemption and his salvation of us in our trials. Please to my number six, Jesus gives his people new life marked by freedom and joy. What was that? Joy. Exactly. John 8, 2. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Freedom is not, great, I don't need God, because that's actually slavery. This is why you look in the book of Genesis, and you've got Adam and Eve. They are born belonging to God. They're totally free. They get to enjoy their life, do whatever they want. And as soon as they sinned and rebelled against God, they lost their freedom. They became slaves. But this is why Christ died to restore us to freedom. John 17.3, Jesus praises the Father. We would have the full measure of his joy within us. New life in Jesus is supposed to bring freedom and joy, which is number seven here. And I'm going to sound like a Debbie Downer, but it goes with everything we're talking about. Uh, Abusing God's free grace is a sin. It's like, oh, you just brought me down with that. Well, let me just talk about this. Galatians 5.13. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge a sinful nature. 1 Peter 2.16. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover for evil. Live as servants of God. Now, honestly, can grace get you into trouble? Yes, grace can get you into trouble with food and sex and drink, whatever. It's like Jesus made 180 gallons of wine at Cana at that first miracle, and I'm going to drink them all, right? Or Jesus hung out with strippers and prostitutes. Me too, right? Will people get the grace of God, and will they sin with it? Yes, yes, they will. So what then happens is religious people want to come in and make a whole bunch of human rules. Not Bible rules, but stupid human rules. Will human rules keep you from sinning? Sometimes. Right? Maybe. But they won't last very long. Mostly, no. Let me lay this out. Some of us have crazy ways that we manage our conduct. And sometimes I think, for some people, some of those ways might actually be okay. Because you know what tempts you when you love Jesus, so you put this boundary there so you don't go there. But sometimes when we put a boundary there, we think everybody else has to have that boundary too. I get emails from some of you guys sometimes about things you do in your life which are really crazy and weird, and you tell me, I need to tell everybody else to do this. I don't because, one, they wouldn't listen to me, and two, you're weird, okay? Okay? Do, let me ask you this. Do you, if God sets us free, what causes us not to sin? Love of God. That's what does it. Right there. Love of God. We don't need anything else when we learn to be satisfied in who he is. We fall into so many traps in our lives because we're always putting things or others before him. Relationship, job, comfort. We put all these things in God's rightful place. Why? When, when something tempts you, You should ask yourself this question. Why would I trade the love of God for this? That's a question to ask. That's why I think people who enjoy God and live in the grace that he provides, they're strong. And people who don't are weak. And when sin says to people who find their satisfaction in God, you want to bite, we say no because I'm satisfied. Rules will never do what love can. Which takes me to my number eight. Abstaining from freedom to be self-righteous is a sin. Ooh, that's joy. 
like, oh, okay, well, let me explain what I mean. This is where you kind of get to Proverbs. Proverbs 30, verse 12 talks about those who are pure in their own eyes and yet are not cleansed from their filth. These are those who think they are holy, but they are not, and everyone knows they are not. This is people who say, oh, I'm holy, and what are holy people like? Holy people are like me. I like the King James Version, therefore holy people like the King James Version. I speak or don't speak in tongues, therefore holy people speak or don't speak in tongues. I got kids, I'm married, I drink, I don't drink, I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat. And you read verses like Ephesians 5, 2, where it says, be imitators of God as dearly loved children, and you read that as, be imitators of me as dearly loved children, and then you'll live their best life. No, no, we got to understand, look. I, I am white. My rhythm is not the greatest. I, I like rock and roll, and I mean like butt rock, okay? I mean, I like, on my wife's serious station, I got like octane and lithium and hair nation, right? I can't, I can't dance. You do not need to be like me to be holy. Actually, don't be like me. You're probably m- much more holy. Colossians 2, 20-23. Since you died with Christ, the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teaching. The law will never be able to change our hearts. So many people fall into the sin that they try to condemn all the time. Now, there, there's a whole religious... I don't know how to say it without just... There's, there's this whole religious group out there today who tells their leaders that they can't have sex and they can't get married. And what's happening? They're, they're all touching people they shouldn't be touching and there's all these lawsuits and everybody's trying to cover it up. It's crazy. First Corinthians says, if you are set on fire by desire, get married. Genesis says, it is not good for the man to be alone. We have all these stupid human rules and they don't stop us from sin. You have to understand, there is a difference of homes that are filled with with grace and love and discipline versus a home that has like an ogre dad who wants to control everything and just makes all kinds of rules. It is always easier to rebel against the ogre. And this is why people today try and set God up like he's an ogre. God is not an ogre. God is love and grace and discipline. And this is the God that we love and we serve. Christians just seem to love long lists of rules. The longer you are one, the more you like them. And sometimes, I gotta tell you, I even have a little fear telling you this morning when I stay, if you abstain from freedom, it's a sin. I'm like, whew, I don't know if I want to tell them that because I know people at Element. (laughs) Number nine, God's people are to imitate Jesus and live in freedom. You know what that is? That is joy. The goal of the Christian life is to enjoy God. The goal of the Christian life is not to not sin. If, I, if you had a little kid, and you placed a little kid on a couch, right? And the little kid never did anything. Well, he's not sinning, but he's not being pleasing either. You have little kids. What do you want to do? You want to eat and wrestle and color and tell jokes. You want them to enjoy you as their parent. And if we go and I think we stand at heaven's gates, and we never told a joke or hung out with people or enjoyed our life, I think God's going to be like, what are you doing? I created you to live to live, and it's beautiful. To not do nothing sometimes I think can be a sin. I, I, I think we sin by not laughing at my jokes. There is a reason there are all those feasts in the Old Testament. God gathers his people to enjoy hanging out with one another and enjoy him and worship who he is because that's part of worship. Ten, if we are pure, then all of life is to be enjoyed. If we are pure, then all of life is to be enjoyed. Uh, Titus 1.15. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupt and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and their conscience are corrupted. If I say what's pure and impure, everything is pure. 
anything can be pure. 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. You know what that is? It's joy. Can jokes and laughing and dancing and wine and food all be pure? Yes. Because things really aren't pure. Impure people are. And that's what always makes the gospel personal. Was Jesus pure? Yes, Jesus was pure. And yet he was accused of being a drunkard because he drank and accused of being a glutton because he ate. And he was a friend of sinners because all of his friends were tax collectors and whores. Patrick was not the first guy to get labeled that way. One writer wrote this. If Jesus was the perfect man, it was not surprising that he had the perfect humor, the perfect personality. Don't assume the crowds were there solely for his teaching prowess. They liked to be around him. In the end, who crucifies Jesus? The religious people. The religious people, the most holy people, because Jesus never broke the moral rules of the scripture, but he busted through the stupid human ones. And they said, Jesus just isn't holy enough for us. If Jesus isn't holy enough for you, you've got a problem. You've got a problem. Did Jesus respect the scriptures? Of course he did. Did he respect the image of God in people? Of course he did. Did he respect men's stupid rules? Not at all. Not at all. Which goes to my number 11, which is the last one. You're welcome. A life enjoyed to God's glory and our joy shows God's kingdom. What is that? joy in how we live and how we live jesus comes he speaks of the truth and it leads people to a place of joy i think if we're satisfied in who god is it keeps us from sin it keeps us from coveting what everybody else has much of patrick's appeal to the celtic people was his joy his celebration and he saw that as part of his mission not to destroy their joy but to funnel in a way that brought god glory and brought these people to a place of redemption uh, Philippians four eleven through thirteen. I am not. Paul says this. I'm not saying this because I am in need. For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstance. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether it is well, whether well fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through Him who gives me strength. Some people are always looking at the future. One day, when I get my house done, on February 3rd, 2025, we'll have people over, we'll hang out, it'll be great. The gospel teaches us to live the present every single day. Some people, you live in the past all the time. All of your favorite moments are in the past. Oh, I remember when he used to chase me. Well, you know what? He can still chase you. Just slow down so he can catch you, all right? Just... I remember when we used to do this, or you used to do that. Ecclesiastes says to live in the times and the seasons of now, so we live the gospel now today. Think about this in a practical way. When was the last time you spent a day with your friends and God's people getting together? I mean, you live in California. Almost every day is a good day to barbecue with friends. Tomorrow's Labor Day. Most people have it off work. Get together with people. Enjoy hanging out. If you're married, it is a good day to kiss your spouse and go to bed. Just saying, okay? It's always a good day to worship God and how we live. If you are single, it is a good day to make some new friends and to hang out with people and deepen and develop relationships because we worship God and how we live in every aspect and every moment of our lives. Living in joy because this is really what our culture craves, but it never finds. It never finds, but it's what God has given to us as his people to enjoy as we live in his wisdom. Redemption is God saving us from our sin, which entails him saving us from us, from us. And so we get to enjoy the life God gives to us. It's a get to. It's a get to. With God, we get to lighten up. We get to have a little bit less of us and a little more of him. And I know, I know that you probably know people in your life like this who they're so concerned about themselves. It's like, have you? and they're always serious. Lighten up. Okay, lighten up. It is God who rescues you. You don't rescue you, so lighten up, right? Trust yourself into his more than capable hands because he is good.
three of you. <laughs> you got to understand, even when we talk about communion, that's why we go to communion. It's a reminder of what God has done to rescue us. Communion should be a place of joy. Yes, sometimes sober, heartfelt reflection and laying down of ourselves. But today, communion and joy. You break that cracker like Christ's body was broken for you. You dip in the wine of the grape juice. Reminds of his blood that was shed for you and me. Because we couldn't pay this ourselves. We would always be under condemnation. We would never know what joy is. We'd all be looking, always looking for this fleeting happiness. But now we get to live in true joy because Jesus rescued us. Amen. Guys, they're so white. We do this in remembrance of what he has done because it changes then how we live. The band's going to come up. There'll be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you guys need prayer, they would love to pray with you. If, if you are someone who, who just can't see through your own life to this place of joy and freedom that God longs to bring into your life, they would love to pray with you about that. Because I... So often, we get so caught up in who we are. One of the things the gospel does is it gets our eyes off of us and onto where it's meant to be, onto the person of Jesus, so we can actually live in joy and hope and freedom and life again. Our God is good. Our God is good. We need to live in that goodness. We need to live in that hope and in that grace. Because, again, our culture is looking for happiness, but happiness is fleeting, and what it really needs is deep, abiding hope and joy. And that is only found in the person of Jesus, and this is why the gospel is good news, because Jesus brings to us what we can never bring to ourselves, relationship, hope, and life again. There are offering boxes next to every door, and we give because God gave so much to us, giving as part of our worship. Uh, God, in his joy, gives to us, so we are called to be joyful givers as well. Uh, there's food outside, grab some deep, meet some people, maybe take some of those sermon notes and have some questions with other people about joy and what joy brings, and, and maybe some places where you're not living in the joy of God, or maybe you have a struggle and a trial, and you want to talk about how you can have joy in the midst of that tr- struggle. Not happiness, where you have a plastered face in the midst of a trouble, but no, but true joy that sits down deep, even in the midst of maybe a sorrow that you go through. Because our God brings hope and grace and peace. And we are called to be those people who live the representations of that joy to this world of the rescue of our great God of us. So let's be a people who live in joy. You're slow. Who live in joy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being a God who, who brings joy and hope and grace to his people. I ask that this morning for those of us in this room who are maybe going through some trial, that you would teach us how to have this deep, pervasive joy even in the midst of those things. That you would teach us to be those who, who trust you no matter what situation we find ourselves in. And that in the midst of those, we would look to what you have done and continue to do in our lives. Your rescue of us. And that we would be those who begin to rest in you. So we do not have to rest in ourselves and our work and what we're trying to do by ourselves. But we would rest in you so that we can actually live in true joy. Father, have us be a witness to who you are by how we are in all the situations of our lives. Speaking of your grace and goodness. Speaking of your pervasive joy. Teach us to trust you more than we trust ourselves. To live in your freedom more than our own self-perceived freedom in our own minds of being nobody telling us what to do. 
Have us understand you as our dad that is full of grace and goodness and discipline. But you are the furthest thing from an ogre that we could ever imagine because you bring us life and joy. Teach us to be those who live in your great joy because you are so good to us. We ask these things in your son's good name. Amen.